Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with New York State Assembly member Linda Rosenthal. Linda is the chairman of the Committee on Alcohol and Drug Abuse, and she's a proponent of supervised injection facilities where people can more safely inject drugs under clinical supervision and receive health care, counseling, referrals to health and social services, including drug treatment. There's 98 SIFs operating in 66 cities around the world and 10 countries to date. So, Linda, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay. Assemblymember Rosenthal, you've, uh, you've really been pretty passionate and aggressively pushing for supervised injection facilities in New York. Could you tell us how you grabbed onto this initiative and ran with it? Sure, absolutely. Um, I'm the chair, as you said, of the New York State Assembly Committee on Alcoholism and Drug Abuse. And um, I've I've been the chair for about almost two years now. And so during that time, I've been working with uh, advocates, people in recovery, people who are still substance uh, users, my colleagues, to address the opioid crisis that is ravaging our communities across New York, as well as really across the rest of the country. And I believe we have reached a tipping point right now in our efforts to address this crisis. Um, In the United States, deaths from opioid overdose have exceeded the number of Americans killed in car crashes and gun deaths. And that is, you know, a very sobering point. And, you know, there there are many modalities that have been tried over the years, many um, approaches to dealing with people who who use uh, substances, and I think uh, now is the time to try something that we have not yet tried in the U.S., but that has been tried across the globe. So right now, though, I think many people believe that this harm reduction strategy only serves to promote addiction and keep people on drugs. Well, I think that is an uneducated approach. And I don't say that disparagingly. I think people need much more information 
And uh, frankly, this is the same argument that was used 30 years ago when we started teaching teenagers about sex, safe sex and providing them with free condoms. People said, well, that will encourage them to have sex. And we know that they will do that whether they have condoms or not. So it's just recognizing the reality and and then adjusting approaches to that reality. It's the same thing that occurred maybe 20 years ago with um free needle exchange. The same arguments were presented that this will encourage people to, you know, use the needles to uh to use um illegal substances to use heroin and we were just enabling them. And the reality was that people were using unclean needles for those substances and were consequently getting sick with HIV and hepatitis C and dirty needles, and they were dying. Um, the same approach is now needed with SIFs. People are dying. People who are addicted need to use. They're, they have no choice, and we've seen that evidenced by users uh, frequently robbing their own parents of jewelry, of anything of value, so they could sell it and have money to buy their next uh, dose of heroin. If anyone anyone who understands or, or even mildly is acquainted with addiction, that's one of the key elements. You are compelled to use. And so what we're doing is the reality is people are using, people are using in McDonald's bathrooms in your child's park uh, on the street. And it's not safe for the community and it's not safe for the people who are currently addicted to be doing this out in without uh, a safe place to do it and in a place where there's medical supervision. So the reality exists. We can't change the reality by just saying it doesn't exist. Um, and so we have to adjust how we deal with this crisis and try to save lives and having safe or supervised injection facilities in the communities is the way to go, I believe. I get all that, but there's kind of a prevailing view that someone who's addicted to opioids really has to hit their lowest low before they're going to go for help. If they've got this nice environment to go and use, how's that going to happen? Well, first of all, I think people should recognize that no one likes being addicted to heroin. It is a miserable life. All you think about is your next dose. Where are you going to get your next uh, supply of heroin? Um, you know, your health suffers. Often people who are addicted to heroin don't have a stable home environment, can't work, don't have jobs. They're poor. Often they live on the street. They have miserable lives. It's not a fun thing to be uh, an addict. And um, as I said earlier, their brain chemistry compels them to get the next dose, uh, to get the next, you know, uh, syringe full of, uh, full of heroin. And so not only are we saving their lives, because as we've seen out on the street, a lot of heroin these days is adulterated with fentanyl, and it causes death, um, overdose very rapidly. And um, we want to make sure people 
don't die over this. Hence the uh, the use of Narcan, and that is spreading all over, which actually brings people back from near death. They're overdosing, and they get some uh, Narcan, and they and they come back to to life basically. Um, so we don't we don't want that to happen. If they are in a supervised site uh, with a medical personnel there. They can ensure that they won't die, first of all. But they will be in an environment where they will have resources, A, to have um, perhaps a, a home, a job, health care, um, food, access to those basic needs, but also the opportunity to engage with professionals who will guide them, if they are ready, toward detox and then uh, recovery. So... Um, In New York, you've been pushing hard since, I believe, 2015 to get SIFs established. Is that about right? Um, 15, 16. I don't remember the exact exact time period. But, you know, I've been meeting with a lot of different groups and, and, you know, they're advocating, listening to their members and seeing where they were at. Um, and and different trends, and I've been reading about this, and I, you know, I see how well it works in Vancouver, Canada, for example. And I thought this is something we have to try here in New York State. So what um, what hurdles have you overcome, Assemblymember Rosenthal? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there's. There are none yet that I need to overcome because, uh, you know, we're just at the discussion phase. Um, And, you know, the more I speak about it, the more people learn and do their own research and realize this is clearly a viable solution to part of the crisis. And, uh, you know, I will be introducing a bill shortly. And then, you know, I will get input and listen to concerns from communities who are worried about the potential impacts that SIFs could have on their communities. Um, We have a new administration in Washington. We don't yet know, although we can probably guess its approach to drug policy. Uh, Law enforcement, you know, we have to continue to engage with all of those different uh, groups of people and get uh, community buy-in. So, um, you know, people understand why it's an important step to try out the SIF model. When do you expect, or, or if you were to project on this, when would you say uh, the, the state would be in a position to do a pilot, or when are you hoping maybe would be a better way to put it? Well, um, our legislative session goes from January through June. So um, within that time frame, I will be introducing the bill and, you know, hopefully it will go through committee. It has to do the same thing in the state Senate. So and then it has to ultimately, when it passes both houses, go to the governor. So this is not something we're just going to, you know, introduce and it'll smooth have smooth sailing through the process. This is a very serious conversation that we need to have. And um, it will take a lot of collaboration and listening to people's concerns to enact it into law. But it's certainly time that we put this on the table and uh, start discussing it. Now, will your effort also require changes in federal law, or will you be able to do it without that? 
Right. I mean, you see in Colorado and other states, they have, um, one can buy marijuana legally there, even though it's illegal on the federal level. So there are ways to, um, you know, ensure that uh, the state won't get in trouble with the federal government. Um, you know, so we're we're working on that. But as I said, we have to see as well what the approach of the new administration is. Okay. But, it, you know, it's certainly possible to do without, you know, we're not going to sneak do it so the federal government doesn't know about it. These are discussions that and agreements that have to be made. Sure. So um, are you aware of what they've done in uh, Ithaca and some of the uh, – their, their, uh, I guess their mayor is pretty progressive mm -hmm. there in addressing yeah. this, and you've probably yeah. been in touch with them and and talked about some of their efforts yes. there, and compared yeah. notes. Right. So where do they stand on things now? Communities alone can't can't do this. I mean, I guess they they could try to, but it's it's wiser to do it on the state level to have a state law allowing it, and then we would work with different communities to, to see where it would fit in the best or where we could try it or start it first. But Ithaca, like so many other cities, is just reeling from um, heroin use, fentanyl use, other opioids, um, and it's something that we really have to come to terms with in Ithaca, New York City, in, in the Bronx, in Staten Island. These are places in New York State where there is a lot, an increasing number of people who are are using heroin and opioids. It's true in the white suburbs. It's true in places that 20 years ago, it was not true. And um, along with that has come a change in approach. So when it was just urban areas, people said, this is a crime, and you go to Go to jail, and and we'll, we will not see you again. They throw away the key. Now it's recognized after decades of research and change in attitude. Now that others, aside from urban dwellers, are are enmeshed in this uh, epidemic, that it's actually a health crisis. It is not a criminal justice issue anymore. Of course the large-scale drug dealers and all of that is a criminal issue. But in terms of helping people um, become, you know, independent, not reliant on these drugs, this is a health care issue. It's an addiction issue. It is not a criminal justice issue in that same way. So now there are different approaches being tried. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy that there's been a change in society's attitude um, but, you know, we also at that same time have to enlarge people's thinking that we also have to change the way we treat this addiction. Sure. Yeah. So what other programs have you seen that have been working in your community there, Assemblymember Rosenthal? Well, one of, one of the important things, um, the widespread use of naloxone, so anyone basically can can have access to it and, and use it. Um, you know, it happens when people get a bad dose or, or overdose. Fire department, pharmacists, uh, neighbors can have a naloxone kit that they administer and that um, reverses the overdose. That's a very new approach. You know, we can we can save people's lives at that moment. 
the trouble is, once they're, you know, back, how are we going to help them? So one of the reasons, one of, sorry, one of the approaches is to use Suboxone or Vivitrol. These are drugs that cut the craving. So a person could have a job, a normal life, and be taking Suboxone. It's similar to the methadone approach. Um, it's, this is just a different, a different substance. And um, that is increasingly becoming the approach that professionals prefer. It's called uh, MAT, Medication Assisted Treatment. And we need to have more doctors who are allowed to prescribe those in communities around the state. Um, the federal government just recently increased uh, increased the number of uh, patients that doctors could prescribe to, and we just have to make sure that they are, uh, you know, they are in all population centers, not just you know here and there, because it's it's a clear way to get people on the road to recovery when their cravings, the imperative to get the next hit doesn't exist. Uh, we also need to see that in prisons. When people are released from prison, and, you know, let's not fool ourselves, there's plenty of drugs in prisons. Um, they need they need that kind of protection so they will not go out and resume old habits or newly acquired habits. Another thing that works well is peer counselors. So, for example, if someone lands in the emergency room, you know, they uh, treat him or her, then they say, okay, after a few hours, you can you can go back out. If people go back out without any kind of counseling or direction, they will go back to drug use immediately. So we need peer counselors in all the hospitals so that uh, someone who's gone through uh, the situation can can help guide the person to in the right in the right direction connect them with substance use disorder uh, groups and different recovery centers so that they can be successful in tackling their addiction we need better wraparound services for those in recovery uh, we need uh, better living environments for people on college campuses uh, there there is so much available we do need more funding to ensure that all of these programs are available throughout the state of New York. And historically, um, the budget for OASIS, which is the office of uh, the state office of uh, substance abuse, has been low. Has received very low amounts of funding, and. Uh, I hope the governor includes in his budget that we are to receive shortly uh, a much bigger amount of funding for that office. We we need um, all sorts of things that exist to help people, and we can't keep just saying, well, it's an epidemic. We have to deal with the epidemic. Our citizenry is dying. Assemblymember Rosenthal, I really appreciate your spending a few minutes with us today. Would you like to give us your final thoughts um, that you'd like to share with our listeners about the mm -hmm. opioid epidemic in general and perhaps mm -hmm. New York in uh, particular sure. I, I think I think we need to start from when when 
children are young. We have to start with education in the schools. And we see that this has worked uh, for other things. For example, smoking cigarettes, other kinds of behaviors that kids are apt to pick up from their parents or their peers or seeing something on television. We have to start very early with the education process. So there are some um, schools where there are counselors and educators uh, present, but not every school has that. So we need to beef that up. We need to, and we're on the road to this, teach the medical community how to identify and effectively treat opioid addiction and work with the public to reduce the stigma associated with drug use. As I said earlier, nobody wants to be addicted to drugs. It, it's a chemical, it's a reaction that happens, and then you're kind of caught. You're caught in in the web of addiction. Uh, we also need to recognize that housing is a critical component of recovery and do more to guarantee housing for those in recovery. But most importantly, we need to put our money where our mouths are. It's easy to talk about the crisis, but unless we work to actively fund programs that have been proven to reduce addiction and overdoses, then we are not really working to save lives. So uh, we need a, a a grand approach to this, and it's something that nations around the world are struggling with. Here in New York State, it is crucial that we address it head on, and that's what I aim to do as chair of the Assembly Committee on Alcoholism and Drug Abuse. Well, thank you again, Assemblymember Rosenthal. Thank you so much. Okay. We've been visiting today with Assemblymember Linda Rosenthal, who represents the 67th Assembly District, which includes Hell's Kitchen in Manhattan. Assemblymember Rosenthal is a big proponent of the supervised injection facilities and really is a trailblazer in New York in her support of this program. Joining me today is Dr. Aaron Fox. Dr. Fox is an addiction medicine specialist from the Bronx, and he is uh, a member of the New York Healthcare Professionals for Supervised Injection Facilities. Dr. Fox, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Okay. So, You've seen a lot as far as the opioid epidemic is concerned in the Bronx over the course of the past 10 years. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've witnessed? History in, the, in New York City as a whole actually goes back since the 70s. So when we're thinking about the opioid epidemic across the United States, some of the things that New York City went through in the past um, we're actually seeing in other places. So some of, uh, some of these problems that um, that go along with injection drug use have been occurring in New York City for a long, uh, a longer period of time, and over uh, that since the 1970s, there's been more op infrastructure in New York City that has been built up to try to reduce transmission of HIV and to try to reduce overdoses. So here in New York City, we've had uh, better access to treatment, like methadone maintenance treatment programs. And we've also had uh, better access to uh, buprenorphine uh, treatment providers for opioid use disorder. And we have a New York City Department of Health that does active surveillance on uh, drug overdose deaths. What's been changing most recently and really in the past year has been the increase in overdose deaths uh, from fentanyl. And 
just this uh, just this past year in 2016, with the emergence of, of fentanyl, uh, the Department of Health just reported that there's going to be uh, more than a thousand. Uh, they're predicting more than a thousand drug overdose deaths. Um, the majority of which, uh, nearly all, involve multiple substances, but the majority of, of uh, the drug overdose deaths also involve an opioid, and much more uh, prominently where, where fentanyl was very rarely detected in the past. It's now uh, one of the leading causes of, of drug overdose deaths. So uh, that's, that's projected. That, I'm sorry. That was projected. The thousand deaths are projected for just New York City. Yeah, for New York City for 2016. So again, you're a member of uh, a group of over 70 physicians that support supervised injection facilities. Some would say that services such as this for addicts actually attract addicts and kind of grow that pool, if you will, of, uh, of that type of behavior. How would you comment on that? Well, I think that's a common uh, misconception about a lot of harm reduction activities, that they will enable drug use or increase the amount of drug use. And we've seen in the past with uh, supervise, with uh, syringe exchange programs that have been well studied that after implementing syringe exchange programs where uh, people who inject drugs can have access to uh, sterile injecting equipment, that it doesn't increase uh, drug use in those communities. Uh, people are able to uh, inject in safer ways, and um, it prevents transmission of infectious diseases like HIV and, and hepatitis C. The data that's out there shows that it doesn't uh, increase the amount of injection drug use in, in the community. And just from you know a perspective of uh, that I have as a clinician, I mean it's hard for me to believe that someone would, who wasn't injecting uh, drugs regularly, um, that they would go to a supervised injection facility and then their drug use would escalate after that. The supervised injection facilities are targeted towards reducing some of uh, the public health uh, problems that go along with uh, that go along with injection drug use, like uh, transmission of infectious diseases and prevent overdoses. Uh, but it's hard for me to believe that this would that this would be an attractive place where people would want to go to try out drugs. Uh, it just doesn't seem plausible. It's just hard to wrap your head around, I guess, the, the concept of why lowering the barriers there and making it easier for them to use, why that doesn't promote them to continue to use as opposed to seeking treatment. Well, so I think the, the most important thing, thing to remember is that at least 80% of people in the United States who have an opioid use disorder remain out of treatment. So the majority, the vast majority of people are not in treatment and are not getting treatment. So the more that we marginalize people and you know push people away, uh, that the more difficult it becomes for them to seek treatment. But as a society, I think we need to come together and come up with another al alternative because just pushing people away isn't going to make them stop. What it does do is make people use in riskier ways, using alone, um, using in a public area, um, using in, in areas that are less hygienic. Clearly, to make this happen in New York, 
uh, I would expect you'd have to have a complete cultural transformation. Where are you in that process? How ripe is New York for this and, and ready for SIFs? Well, I do think uh, I do think we're at the very beginning of that movement. Um, I think now that there's been in the past year a lot of celebrities dying from overdoses. Uh, it's and it's for a long time now, like you said, over the past decade, it's been more prominent in the in the news. So there's a sensitivity, and people realize that uh, overdoses have become an epidemic, and we need to uh, do something about it. But I think changing uh, culture is is difficult, and we're going to uh, need buy-in from a lot of different people. We need leadership from the people who are most affected by the issue, by people who dr- use drugs or people who inject drugs. But there also there needs to be buy-in from law enforcement. I know that was a component in a lot of the cities who have gotten this approved, that uh, this idea that if even if we all if a lot of us feel uncomfortable with the idea that that uh, people will be doing something that we don't think is good for them or we don't think is safe, it can actually make the community safer by reducing the amount of syringes that are in the community or reducing the amount of crime uh, that's in the er- in the areas surrounding the supervised injection facilities. So you need to have buy-in from law enforcement. You need to have buy-in from the local community. You need to have... Uh, buy-in from the treatment community. One of the strong points about the supervised injection facilities is that they do help get people into treatment, that people who use uh, the supervised injection facility. I believe one of the reports from Vancouver showed that 57% of people who use the supervised injection facility uh, ended up getting linked uh, to addiction treatment services. Wow, that's Uh, a big number. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So... uh, in getting to that point where uh, people feel a little more comfortable with allowing or, or giving people an option to do something that, uh, like injecting drugs in, uh, in a supervised injection facility, even if you feel uncomfortable with it, recognizing that there's public health benefits, that there's community benefits, that there's benefits for uh, law enforcement, that we all need to be working together to uh, to have a solution to this this uh, multifaceted problem. Can you share other successful programs that have been implemented in New York to address the opioid epidemic, Doctor? Yeah. So I think I mean one of the I think most important points that I've I've heard uh, from other people who have been working on supervised injection facilities in other countries is this idea that we need a spectrum of services. So for people who don't who who want treatment services but don't want to be on a medication um, like uh, buprenorphine or methadone, uh, there needs to be access to inpatient rehabilitative services and outpatient substance use treatment programs. New York City has a lot of uh, the components of this spectrum of of services. So on from the treatment side of things, there's access to uh, methadone maintenance treatment. There's uh, there's still not sufficient access to opioid uh, treatment programs to meet uh, the demands uh, in the community. But there there is more access than other places. Uh, New York City's done a lot on distributing naloxone. So on that spectrum, if people aren't ready um, aren't ready to stop treatment, there still needs to be services available uh, to prevent overdose. 
New York City has also been working on trying to educate medical providers about safer uh, prescribing of opioid analgesics uh, to uh, prevent development of problems and, and reduce uh, the supply of, of opioid analgesics. One of the big things is, is stigma. Uh, you know, there's a lot of social stigma against uh, both substance use disorders, um, but also against the treatments that are most effective for substance use disorders. So there's a lot of stigma about uh, being enrolled in the methadone maintenance treatment program. There's a lot of stigma around uh, receiving buprenorphine treatment. And certainly from uh, my work as a clinician, I think I, I learned very, very quickly that this isn't opioid use disorder isn't a problem that's going to be cured in a short period of time. Uh, people can't go to detox or go to 28-day rehab and then expect to be cured uh, of this of of this problem, especially if it's been going on for uh, for years or or decades. So I think in the medical community, um, we've been thinking more about opioid use disorder as a chronic condition that instead of uh, managing with a short-term intervention like a 28-day rehab, uh, it's it's really something that we try that that we do want to manage in primary care. Uh, so it's not just that the medications need to be available uh, in the community, but they also need to be it needs to be accepted that people may continue to uh, may continue uh, to need treatment. So. You know, insurance plans can't cut people off after about six months of treatment and say you've had enough uh, of the methadone maintenance treatment or the buprenorphine treatment. So I think addressing both the stigma of of, uh, of having an addiction, but also the stigma of, of these medications, uh, is 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 really important to improve access to care. And there was really there was an infamous example from. Uh, Long Island a couple of years ago, uh, which was in the news uh, prominently, where someone had legal problems uh, after the after an arrest was enrolled in methadone maintenance treatment, uh, started working, um, life was getting better, and then after uh, after his case was adjudicated and he was entered into a, a drug court program. Uh, was forced to come off of methadone, ended up relapsing and overdosing and dying. And cases like that really shouldn't happen. Um, it really, if this is a treatment that we know, we have, we have decades of evidence uh, that it works, um, especially with, with my experience with buprenorphine, I have personal experience with patients who's, who, who have gained control over their lives and have gotten so much better, uh, to have... Um, to have a, a drug court telling uh, an individual like that they can't that they can't use this FDA approved and effective medication seems outrageous to me. Wow. Huh. Well, doctor, I want to thank you for your time today. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners about the opioid epidemic in New York in general? or safe and in, uh, supervised injection facilities and your efforts to support that? Yeah, I mean, I think my, 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 final, my final thought on the supervised injection facilities is, is that you know, even as a treatment provider, I, you know, I, I, certainly, um, underst I, I certainly understand the discomfort with this idea that uh, people will continue uh, 
to in, will continue to inject drugs. Uh, but the the idea is, it's it's just frightening to me that people uh, are pushed to the margins and pe- people have uh, no place to go. So <clears throat> the idea of the supervised in, injection facility is really uh, to reach out to people um, who oftentimes have uh, experienced uh, horrible traumas in their life and to reach out to people to get them uh, the care and help that they need and uh, to help prevent overdoses because you can't, you, you can't take an overdose, uh, an overdose death back. Um, you know, when people talk about hitting rock bottom and people have to hit rock bottom to change, um, but with opioid use disorder, if, if someone hits rock bottom and that rock bottom is death, uh, then there's no coming back from that. So uh, I think the supervised injection facilities are, uh, is our, our best way of, of reaching people who are not ready uh, or not able to stop injecting at, at one point in time. All right. Again, thank you, doctor. We've been visiting today with Dr. Aaron Fox, an addiction medicine specialist from the Bronx in New York, and also a member of the New York Healthcare Professionals for Supervised Injection Facilities. My name is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover Two Resources. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.